Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 16. This is our last episode of 2018, so have a happy new year, and the next time I'll see you is in 2019. Since we're after the holidays, I have an update about what's happening here at Fun Ideas Productions. Final edits are still being done on my Warren Kramer and Alvin Show books. I still don't have an official release date yet for either, but you can order the Alvin Show book now at bearmannermedia.com. I am hoping for a February release date, and I'll let you know in an upcoming podcast. Today's guest is David Seedman. He had lengthy tenures at Disney Comics, as well as Claypool Comics and Marvel and DC. He has also written a diverse library of books, and we'll discuss all these things today. Here he is, David Seedman. So, hello David, how are you doing today? I'm alright, Mark, how are you? Good. Uh, you have had a very vast career, according to what you've told me, shown me, what I've searched around on the internet. So, I guess, how did you get started in the comic book world? What what was your interest, and how did you land such lucrative roles as being editor and founder of different comic publishers and things like that? So, I guess, start from the beginning. Well... Uh, I wouldn't say I'm editor and founder of publishers, but I've worked for various companies. Okay. Uh, I was always a comics fan, uh, and when I, as I, when I went to college, actually as an English major, um, I was starting to think as I hit my senior year, uh, well, I'm going to have to make a living. <laughs> what am I going to do? And I, and eventually, I settled on publishing, uh, and I started submitting pieces. To the comics press, I had uh, uh, one a book review in the comics journal. I wrote an article for Amazing Heroes, which was the comics journal sister publication focusing on superheroes. And um, I, I got into uh, journalism as eventually a comic strip editor at the Los Angeles Times Syndicate, which did strips based on, among other things, Star Trek and Star Wars. Hmm. Well, how I got into comic books was uh, our art director at the LA Times Syndicate, Lee Nordling, uh, who has had quite a pop culture career himself, um, went to Disney. Hmm. And he called me a, a while later, knowing that I wanted to leave the LA Times, and said there's a job here that I think would be good for you. I applied, I got it. Among the things that the job involved was editing the stories that went into uh, Disney, Disney Comics worldwide. Mm-hmm. And when Disney started its own comic book company in the late 1980s, I was one of the natural choices to help develop the line and then become one of the editors of the line. From there, I was in comic books, okay. and I've been. Uh, so that's that's how I got in. I guess that's why I said founder, because you know, and I, if it's an incorrect yeah. term, I I did read that you're a co-founder of Disney Comics. So yeah, co- co-founder. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the it was originally a cartoonist and an editor named Bob Foster, who has quite a career in animation and right. other field. Mm-hmm. Um, and and me who were 
we were on staff in this part of Disney called um, Creative Services, which basically oversaw all of Disney publishing in, in the United States and uh, in Canada, I believe, um, including the comics that we were that were being produced for the overseas market. Um, and so Bob and I were the original two people involved on the editorial side. We brought in Len Wein, who was hired as the editor-in-chief. We basically uh, helped our boss get hired, which is <laughs> nice, deal, I must say. Uh, and, you know, Len, Len was, for those who don't know, uh, a very important comics editor and writer, primarily known for co-creating Swamp Thing and co-creating Wolverine. Um, and we knew him because the comics business was at that point pretty small. Uh, we knew Len. He was local to L.A., which a lot of comics people were not. We knew that he knew Disney. He had a good sense of humor. He also understood things like story construction and working with artists. Uh, so the three of us, basically on the editorial side, created uh, Disney Comics. Uh, there were people on the other side, the publishing side, uh, the business side, who were there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but on the editorial side, it was me and Bob and then Len and then, and then others. Now, did you work at all when Disney was uh, with uh, Gladstone prior to yeah. that, or is that when you? Well, that, that was part of my gig because okay. before, uh, as part as, as part of the team that was overseeing all of the U.S. publishing, I was dealing with and as a comics guy on that team, the comics editor on that team. Uh, I was the one who worked with Gladstone. Um, you know, they they submitted uh, their art, their stories and art through us, mm -hmm. um, and I thought they, it, boy, I, I thought they were doing great work, yes. but they weren't uh, uh, ready to do the kind of expansion we wanted to do that the very large amount of new comics we wanted to do, and the company wanted to take them in house anyway, and it hurt. Because we knew, we knew, I knew the Gladstone people. I liked them, yeah. um, and they were doing good work. And, and I don't think I was the one who told them, "No, it's all coming back within Disney." Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was. I mean, I ended up hiring some uh, some of them as as writers and colorists and people like that. Yeah. Um, but it was. You don't like telling somebody who's been doing nothing but a good job. Nope, sorry, can't you use it? Can't use you anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. It did. Now, uh, the person who really I get what I've heard, you know, and I lived through all this, and I was reading the books then, so I kind of have a good knowledge of it. Uh, it was Michael Eisner himself that that wanted to bring it in house. He was trying to get everything under Disney's control rather than licensing things. Is that correct or? don't know i never heard about i i don't think it's been a long time uh i don't think i heard about eisner making that decision himself yes he did want as far as i know to get as much as possible in-house just as, as a general decision but i think it but i don't think he said specific well i don't know okay. i never heard that he said specifically bring the comic books in because we were so tiny compared to <laughs> you know, the parks and the movies and tv and all of these things right um but I know one thing that happened at that time is uh, they purchased Gibson greeting cards, and part of that was so they didn't have to license out to Hallmark and everything else, at least at that time. I think now they license out everything again, but that was Eisner's thinking to get it all under his control. 
That may that may have been. I, I never dealt with uh, with people on Eisner's level or anywhere near it. Okay, I, so I, you never met with him. That was just kind of a question. Oh, God, no. <laughs> sort of a, an, uh, or a, they would have these annual meetings of the entire studio staff, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, included us, um, and Eisner would give a talk. That's about, so I was like in the, the 98th row, but I was in the same room. That's about as close as I got. <laughs> now, um, how long did the Disney comics imprint last? It seemed to me it was about five years. Is that correct? Am I thinking correctly? Roughly speaking, okay. I mean, it was. I think it was a little bit less than that. Okay, because I remember um, the infamous Disney implosion. <laughs> but prior to that, it seemed like you were doing pretty well. Is like you're doing titles for each of the Disney afternoon shows. So there's a Chip and Dale title, and there is a uh, what are those shows? I can't even think of all. <laughs> but, uh, oh boy, there was Ducktales. There was Tailspin. Yeah, yeah Tailspin. That's what I was thinking. There was yeah, Ducktales. I was editing Chip and Dale. Uh, we, I, we did Darkwing Duck. I worked on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a lot of things. Yeah, we mm-hmm. were we were doing live uh, uh, graphic novel adaptations of some of the live action movies. They weren't even Disney movies. They would be uh, from other parts of the company, like Touchstone or Hollywood Pictures. Right. Um, I edited, for example, an adaptation of the horror comedy Arachnophobia. Yeah, I remember uh, that one. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, with so, John Goodman. <laughs> yes, with John Goodman. Um, so yeah, we were we were doing. We had a big sandbox to play in, and we had we we had a great time. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were doing those, were those? Because I know how Disney is like this. Uh, but were you doing things exclusively for the U.S. market, or? Is it like kind of how Egmont evolved, where you know it starts off in the European markets and eventually gets translated into the American market or whatever? How how were you doing it? The way it ran back then uh, is that every publisher would do things for their own market, and then they would be available for every other uh, Disney publisher to reprint if they wanted to. Uh, I mean, we, we certainly picked up things from the foreign publishers because some of the work was just so good. Yeah. Um, and they picked up stuff from us. Uh, uh, matter of fact, Marv Wolfman, um, who was one of our editors and writers, and of course is known for his work at DC and Marvel. Yeah. Um, uh, we had a book that, that I launched called called Goofy Adventures, and the idea of that was you would have Goofy and famous people throughout history, um, but he was still, you know, Goofy. God bless him. Uh, so we. <laughs> We had goofy, you know, as goofy George Washington. We had goofy Frankenstein. We had, but, but you know, so it was both fiction and nonfiction, as long as it was historical. Mm-hmm. Now, Marv, of course, became got famous for, among other things, Tomb of Dracula, which he did with Gene Colan and Tom Palmer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually leading up to the foreign publisher time, really. Um, <laughs> and Marv wrote this, this story, and we got Gene Colan and Tom Palmer to draw it. So yes, Gene Colan drew Goofy. God help us. Uh, and it was great, by the way. It was terrific. Yeah. Uh, but Marv, and it, it got published over overseas. I showed him a copy of the French magazine Journal de Mickey with that story. And Marv looked at it and said, but the story's all puns. How do they translate it? I don't know, Marv. I don't speak French. Um, so, 
And yeah, I told my, we were under a sort of a rule. I told my writers, I assume the other editors did as well, try to avoid word gags yep. because this is going to have to be translated. <laughs> but yeah, the stuff went everywhere. The one I remember, I think, but I don't think you did this. I think you got it from Europe. Is uh, there was a goofy James Bond parody? That's the one I. Yes. Oh boy, that was yeah. Uh, the only thing I did with that, I was it was selected and have it translated and, and rewritten to American idioms. But yeah, we picked that up from. Uh, we even picked up the cover of the book from Europe with Goofy instead of holding the. Uh, James Bond gun by the side of his face was holding a little pop gun. Right. <laughs> now, um, I'm friends with Dana Gabbard, who used to publish Duckburg Times. I think you're friends oh, yes. with him, too. And uh, he recommended you, among other things, uh, to talk on this podcast. Now, I used to be in this um, thing called an APA, which they don't even <laughs> do anymore, thanks to the internet and blogs and everything. But Nobody uh, needs an <laughs> and for those who don't know, it's Amateur Press Association, where you uh, everybody writes a little bit of uh, story or uh, article or something, and then makes enough copies for everybody in the group, and then the entire uh, giant book is distributed to everyone periodically. So that's essentially what Napa is. And a lot of really good talent came out of those things. Yes, yes. So I was with one called Where the Fun Begins, or WTFB, for a number of years. <laughs> and the commentary was mainly on the Disney afternoon, but everybody had their little, you know, areas of interest. And uh, a number of people really liked the comic books, which I'll talk about again in a second. I was kind of more into, like, the theme parks and Disney animation, and uh, others liked to write... Uh, uh, Disney fiction where they'd write their own I did a couple of those too I, I did this one called Horace Horse Collars Dilemma with Mickey, Ma with Mickey Mouse and uh, just to see if I could write a piece of fiction and everybody thought that was really funny but, I, but they all said yeah Disney would never do this <laughs> even though I kept it in character it just still was like a little far afield they might do it nowadays because Disney is a little more adventurous that way but certainly not in the late 80s, early 90s, but anyway, anyway, the the big thing that happened, and since I was reading the comic books, but not, you know, digesting them, where I was, you know, like, paying attention every month, I would just, when they came out, I'd buy them, uh, is that Disney implosion, so what actually caused that, and what was it? I mean, it's like, it seemed like you're publishing, like, about 10 titles regularly, monthly, and then just suddenly... Boom, it, it dropped to, like, Walt Disney Comics and Stories and Uncle Scrooge, and that was all she wrote. And then it went back to Gemstone or Gladstone or which one it was at that point, and that was all she wrote. So what caused that? Uh, I don't know, because that was a business decision, and it, as I said, I wasn't on the business side. Basically, what I think happened was uh, that the company, uh, it was... Um, not a cheap proposition. You have all these people on staff. It wasn't a huge staff, but there were three or four editors. There were production people. Plus, we were paying for freelance freelancers to you know write and draw the books. <laughs> um, and uh, it was uh, not earning the kind of money that the company wanted it to earn, which is the reason for almost any business decision, really. Right. Um, now. Then there were certain other things that limited the amount of money we could make. For example, uh, Marvel 
or DC. They've got these superheroes that can license them out to movies and whatnot. Well, we were, in a sense, an in-house licensee. Um, anything we anything we created was already based on the Disney World, so it's not like we could take Disney Comics and say, go to a breeding card company or a toy maker and say, here you go, there's uh, here, you know, buy the license for this. No, because those licenses already existed, and we were not creating. We were not. It, it was not part of our assignment mm -hmm. to create all kinds of new characters. Our assignment was to take the existing characters. So we, we were cut off from a stream of income that other sizable comics companies didn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that they had. We didn't have it. They did. Mm -hmm. That was part of it. Plus newsstand. Uh, plus, I think there was a. Excuse me. A strategic error in that we went for uh, the comic shop market, which was great. It was it was basically ready cash mm -hmm. because it was so simple. Uh, the distributors or retailers would buy the books, we get the money done. Whereas newsstand distribution, which was declining any, in any event, right. newsstand was much harder. Uh, newsstand was um, you send the books out, you wait. You accept the returns. You get the money of what for what did sell, but it was always a gamble. And we did, and the, since the internet did not exist uh, on the scale that it is today, certainly mm -hmm. uh, we couldn't go digital. There were just a limited number of income streams that we could get from the books, and the sales um, were not. We, we sold very well on some of these things. We were selling. I'll tell you another story. Uh, Peter <laughs> David, who wrote, who wrote for me. Um, who wrote The Little Mermaid um, uh, for issue miniseries we did. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Peter helped me get a job, or a freelance gig, at this company called Full Moon Entertainment, which made direct-to-video movies. They wanted to start up a publishing house. Peter was writing movies for them. The head of the studio, Charlie Band, said, Peter, you know publishing. Who can we get for the, the publishing? And he recommended me. God love you, Peter. Um, that's, no, I'm not being I'm not being sarcastic. I thought that it was great. Yeah. Well, so I came in, and because business people and studio heads like to know numbers, I showed them sales figures for things like the Little Mermaid series. And Peter looked at those numbers, which were in well over a hundred thousand copies, and he said, "Damn, I should have asked for more money." <laughs> um, and so yeah, we some of the books were selling very well. Mm -hmm. Um, some weren't, you know, we're not. That's just the way a company is. Um, but overall, the money coming in was not enough. And the company, um, I think that if we had been allowed to keep going for a while, we could have made our, we could have made a profit and a, and a very, we've done a nice little business for Disney. There's no way to know. Yeah. Uh, but um, that was it. We, uh, the company was not given long enough. Okay, again, I have to back up. I come out of out of journalism initially, and you know, newspaper and magazine publishing. My first job is in publishing. I was an, as an intern at Los Angeles Magazine, which is one of the bigger city magazines. Mm -hmm. And I knew that in in periodical publishing, magazine publishing, it takes five years to break even, let alone make a profit. Right. Sports Illustrated took, a very, took quite a long time. The, the, to, the most enormous success of, in recent decades at the time, then, then recent, um, 
was People Magazine. Huge, huge hit. And it took a year and a half to get into, to just to break even. Yeah. Um, and so if people couldn't do it in a year and a half, well, the Disney business people were looking at us within about two, three years <laughs> and saying, well, you guys aren't making a profit yet. And gee, you know, my feeling was, look, give us five. Give us a standard five. Well, that didn't happen. As a business decision, when you look, you look at just the straight numbers. I would agree with them on the straight numbers. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it in the wider context, um, I don't know. Plus, the other side of it was, and again, as a business decision, I think this makes huge sense. Their attitude was, wait a minute. Why are we spending all this money on salaries, on you know equipment, rental, rent, freelancing, um, all of this stuff, uh, plus the various headaches that come with publishing? Because even an innocuous business like Disney Comics, mm -hmm. you you never know. There could always be a problem, mm -hmm. uh, especially you're you know you're aiming at kids. That can be very delicate. Um, why are we going through this, spending all this money, when we've got Gladstone, Gemstone, whatever you want to call, yeah. sitting out there, willing to pay us money to take all these burdens off our shoulders? <laughs> it's as a business decision. It's an absolute. It makes absolute perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess you know, like I said, you know, I don't know for sure about what I said earlier about Michael Eisner, but maybe that was his. Uh, thinking to bring it under the same roof, but then you know he or somebody else realized that it was more lucrative to keep it licensed out. So, <laughs> well, you know, this happens. In, I, I work for a number of companies. This happens a lot, where a company will say, "Let's set up our own little division for this. See how it goes. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, we'll cancel it." Well, from their standpoint, and from the standpoint of the numbers, absolutely, it didn't work. Yeah. Now. Were the accountants or the bean counters or whatever you want to call them, were they kind of looking at, wow, these comics, when they're published by Dell, <laughs> sold in the millions, and you're not selling? Did they, did they act like that? Like, um, different? No, the, Go ahead. Here, here's the accounting side of it. And by the way, people blame the accountants. People call them bean counters. <clears throat> the accountants save our asses. They make sure our people got paid. God okay. bless the accountants. Okay. The accountants don't make decisions. The most they do is make recommendations. Okay. Um, and uh, Disney Comics, I should, I, I should have mentioned this earlier, but we're talking about memories that go back a long way. Remember I told you when I was editing the, the comics that we created in-house mm -hmm. so that all of the foreign publishers would have enough stuff to put into their books. Some foreign publishers generated a lot of their own, some did not, but in any event, we wanted, we were creating a lot of material so that all of the foreign publishers and the domestic, you know, the U.S. publishers could have material um, to publish. It was a service we did for them. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not they paid for it or how much, I really don't know. Um, but they did but we created all this, all this stuff, and the idea was: wait a minute, why are we creating this stuff that goes overseas? Why don't we create our? We're, we're paying to create comics anyway. Why don't we publish them ourselves? <laughs> and so, you know, that's that was a lot of what went into it as well on the on the business side. Right. That part, you know, because the executives told the a couple executives told me that. Right. That they were looking strictly at the numbers. It's like. 
we're paying for this stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. Why not publish it? Right. <laughs> and then we, we editors got ambitious uh, and said, well, if we're going to set up a comics publishing house, we there are a lot of other things we, we can and should do. Mm-hmm. And so we did. Now, um, during this same time, uh, there was the issue with the speculator market where they're buying multiple copies of, you know, Spider-Man and things like that, and uh, different comic store owners would hoard issues in their basements, you know, hoping to sell them off for millions of dollars a month later, you know, and uh, the whole thing imploded that way. Did that have any effect on the Disney thing, or it just happened to be a coincidence that in the early 90s all this was kind of happening at the same time? I really am not sure. We didn't. If we benefited from it, we probably did a little bit. Um, it wasn't anything near like you know what Marvel benefited from with, with Spider-Man number one, which came out around our time, or the new the new X-Men books, which came out around that time, or or um, Image. Mm-hmm. We were we were yeah definitely in the middle of all of that. The first Image issues. I do know that our first issues. Um, sold very well which and maybe that's a speculator market maybe that's just regular readers being intrigued um i but yeah i don't think the speculator market affected us that much i kind of wish they had because we would have sold more books <laughs> okay well yeah i'm just kind of curious because i'm thinking about that time and everything like that um so moving on from that uh did you stay with uh disney after that or were you done after the uh whole thing imploded uh well after after it imploded um they put me on a on a freelance contract for i believe six months so that I could help with basically the wrapping up, and I came in one one or two days a week or as needed, because even after you announce, you, you still have to put out the final books. Right. <laughs> so they would call me in from time to time. Plus, I would do other services. Um, for, for example, Disney Adventures Magazine, which was a digest-sized magazine, and the um, that was put in at the supermarket checkout stands, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, took the place of a lot of the Archie books and I'm told the Archie management was not happy about it. Um, and, well, we bought the space. Yes. Uh, well, Disney Adventures uh, published a variety of stuff. I wrote a couple articles for them. I, I believe it was under my contract. I did some consulting, mm-hmm. uh, some talent scouting, I should say, because the division I was in, um, I, before Disney Comics, Creative Services, they were having a very hard time, as most most people in any company do finding good talent uh, and so uh, they were trying to build up a, um, a a pool of freelance talent that they could bring in artists in, in, gen, in particular who they could bring in um, who knew how to draw Disney characters and understood the styles and so I did some talent scouting for them and found some people uh, but at the end of that contract um, I was gone but I continued to do as much Disney work as I could because well I was unemployed I needed to make a living <laughs> so I wrote uh, for Disney, the Disney Channel at the time and it may still uh, it at the time had a, um, a magazine and I wrote an article or two for there there was a Disney magazine that was more more general for Disney fans 
Um, and that, I, I had a great time for the Disney Channel magazine. I wrote about the writing of um, the original Rescuers and, and Beauty and the Beast mm. and interviewed the people involved with that, which was a great pleasure. Mm. Um, every, I, I have to tell you, my, my basics, one of my basic lines about Disney is that the writers, the artists, the creative people in general I work with there, I would work with, again, anytime, any project. They are just, anything you want to say good about them, I will agree with, because the writers and artists and other creative people, I mean, talented, helpful, <laughs> uh, prompt, uh, you know, reliable, uh, took criticism well. Whatever it was you want to say about them, I will agree. Uh, and and I, I know I sounded like a shill for the company, which <laughs> oh, I am not. But I'm talking about just the creative people, just about the best talent I've worked with anywhere, and I'd work with them again in a heartbeat. And it, whenever I got the chance, I did. Mm -hmm. It wasn't often, but I did. Um, but anyway, so I left the company, mm -hmm. uh, or the company laid me off. <laughs> uh, laid me off, put me under contract, and then after the contract, I continued freelancing simply because it's what I knew, and I had to make a living. And you could. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, did, I even did things like writing and editing for the Disney company... Um, uh, the corporate annual report. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, because wherever the work is, as long as somebody has, you know, words on a page and, and a paycheck, I want it to be first in line. Right. So I, I didn't get the Disney Channel magazine, but you mentioned the Disney magazine. I used to get that. It was the old Disney news. Uh, did mm -hmm. you do a lot of work for that pe publication? or Not, not a lot. Okay. Uh, I, I wrote one cover story on Disney television when Home Improvement and other shows produced by Disney were very, very big. Um, but no, I didn't I didn't do... I wish I had done more. I was open to it, but their schedules and mine didn't continue to mesh. Right, okay. And um, let's see. So uh, I'm going to ask a weird question just because... <laughs> uh, your name is David Seedman. You told me how to pronounce it. Thank you. And, uh, but... Um, in doing research on finding out things that you've done, uh, I found out there was another David Seedman uh, who is an artist. So, I mean, do you get commonly confused for that, and what happens with that? Not usually, no. Okay. He's okay. a hell of a good artist. Boy, I wish I were. Right. <laughs> uh, occasionally, I remember one point I got passes for, I believe it was Wizard World Philadelphia, which I had not even applied to be a, a guest or a pro at. And I thought, oh, God, all right, the Wizard World people, I was on their mailing list for various other things. They mixed me up with the other guy. Okay. And he and I are Facebook friends, and, you know, we know of each other's existence. Mm -hmm. um, but, no, rarely, the, it, it used to have, we used to get confused more, but not so much for quite a while now. Okay. <laughs> um, just as an aside, um, I don't know if you ever listened to Gilbert Gottfried's uh, podcast, but uh, no, I know about it. But I yeah, <laughs> but he was interviewing Tom Holland. Now he mentioned this to his son, and his son was all excited because Tom Holland plays Spider Man. Well, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't that Tom Holland. It was the Tom oh. Holland who's a director. <laughs> so <laughs> suddenly he was disinterested. So if anybody's uh, listening to this thinking they're getting the artist one, I apologize. Maybe I'll interview him separately in a different episode. <laughs> something else. There's another David Seedman, and I don't know how he pronounces it, yeah. who I, I've written a lot of books. He writes books as well. If you see my name on something and it's about 
ocean kayaking or wilderness navigation, that's the other guy. I'm the one who writes. Well, that's what I was going to ask about because you know. Um, I have my own uh, Amazon page, and I suggest you do it too if you have this confusion. There are other Mark Arnolds out there, and uh, but if I put it under my own name, uh, then you know I can connect to my own books, which are generally about comic books and animation and music. So uh, when you get the one about uh, financial planning or <laughs> other other Mark Arnold books that aren't me, uh, I don't connect to those. So. Um, but I see different books, and you could tell me if these are yours or not. I guess. Um, yeah. So there's a book called Holiday Lights. Is that yours? That's, that's me. Okay. So talk about that one a little bit. Oh my! Uh, <laughs> Holiday Lights came about because uh, Workman Publishing, uh, which is a fairly sizable publisher of uh, very interesting, entertaining books, bought this other company called Story Publishing, and. First talked to people's story. I said, "Really, your company is called Story? You do story books?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah, we've heard that one." Anyway, so uh, the head of Workman, Peter Workman, uh, who has done, I believe, comics-related books as well, um, he said, "I want a book about Christmas lights." Hmm. Well, I was, as a freelancer always is, hunting for my next gig, and um, saw the kind of books. I'm not sure how I was reading the trade journals for the publishing industry, but anyway, I got in touch with Story. They knew I had done, and I told them, you know, I've done pop culture stuff, and I proposed a couple ideas for them. And they said, look, these ideas are nice, but we really need somebody to write this Christmas lights book. Do you want to do it? <laughs> I said, sure. Um, now, I'm Jewish, um, and that's one of the reasons why the book is called Holiday Lights, I think. Oh. <laughs> um, and... Um, so I wrote up a proposal for them, and they said, yeah, this is it. Good. Go do it. And that was pretty much it, except that since it had to be out before Christmas, uh, it had to be done very, very fast. I mean, I wrote that thing, which is something along the lines of 80,000 words, um, in about two, three months, which is very fast, at least for me. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of long nights. It was an enjoyable book, um, but... Wow, it was, it, I, I, since I was not an expert in it, I was starting from absolute scratch. I've never put up lights on my house, ever. <laughs> so I was now going to have to become an expert on this. <laughs> so it was just basically the history of how, you know, well, not since the invention of the electric light, how lighting has kind of taken over during the holiday periods? No. Okay, uh, okay, I'm wrong. Okay, that's, part, that's part of it. That's, that's part okay, of it. Okay, good. Okay. Um, I did cover the history, but mostly it was a survey. I have to explain. Story publishing is primarily a how-to publisher. Ah, okay. Uh, you know, how to make a rock garden or botanical garden in your backyard, that kind of thing. I wanted to do it more as a coffee table book, but there is quite a lot of how-to in the book toward the back. Got it, okay. Um, and they knew I was not a how-to guy. <laughs> I just... I, I studied up and I did uh, uh, but I still am not clear on the difference between uh, amps, volts, and watts but never mind uh, um, anyway so I was um, it was great fun even though it was you know under high speed because it's, it's a fun subject to deal with and I ended up after it was done uh, doing a book tour in I swear to you, a, a uh, 
a red satin jacket, black tuxedo pants, a black top hat that lit up, and a tie that lit up. <laughs> uh, I, I had a fine old time. Uh, <laughs> but I got in touch with the lights community, and they're all, people would ask me, you know, journalists, when the book came out, they'd ask, well, what are the controversies in the business? And I had to say, there really aren't any. <laughs> the, light community, the, the biggest difference, and it's not even an argument, because it's very live and let live, um, is, well, do you do a lot of Santas and reindeer and stuff like that, or are you strictly a Jesus is the reason for the season type of person, and you celebrate that? <laughs> you know, so I was a great disappointment to a lot of my brother and sister journalists. I'm sorry, guys. There are no <laughs> lights business. <laughs> <laughs> All the dirt is dished up in holiday lights. <laughs> yeah. There's just no dirt. There, I mean, it, when people do get jealous of each other, mm -hmm. the way they take it out is they just put more lights on their own homes. Yes, yeah, so I've seen uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Griswold House. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, another okay. So I'm gonna go through these books. If they're not yours, just say not mine. Okay. So the next book I saw was Brazil ABCs. Ah, yeah. That okay. was uh, again. Most of these are things I was just hired to do. I got in touch with publishers. I would say, I see you do books that are similar to the books I've done. You got anything coming up? And so there are a series of these country ABC books, and I just there's. I, I wish I had wild stories about this one, but this was just a matter of. <laughs> I sit down, I do the research, I write the book. Uh, it was difficult for some of the letters. I mean, uh, you, you, it's always hard to find things for X, you know? Right. Um, but it was an ABC book with all of this uh, stuff. And, and after it came out, I looked at it and I said, whoa, I, this, is, this looks great. And I got in touch with the artist. And, we, and it, boy, I wish we'd had a chance to talk before. Not that anything would have been different. But it's like, oh, God, this is a guy who is um, going through the same things I am on the same project. And we, and we really uh, just said, oh, yeah, that one, boy, it, it, where he said that one. I'm, I'm so, I, I said, for example, boy, the drawing of the Jaguar for Jay. You really just knocked it out of the park on that. And he said, "Boy, am I glad you had, you you put Jay for Jaguar because yeah, I love drawing that kind of stuff." <laughs> so you know, he, but no, not a lot of, of tales of adventure. I didn't go to, to Brazil. Mm -hmm. I you know, it, I do not speak Portuguese. None of that stuff. Well, then why Brazil? Was it just uh, was it part of a series or? That was the assignment they had. Okay. <laughs> I think they may have given, given me a choice of two or three others in Brazil. I thought, well, Western Hemisphere, I understand that. Right. Um, but no, no, it was just a straight-out assignment, and um, I, had, I, had, I had it was a lot of fun doing it. Okay. <laughs> but it was just a matter of, okay, now I'm going to learn this subject. <laughs> it's, that's a lot of the fun for me. It's, hey, I get to... I get to learn about this stuff, and I don't have to pay tuition. This is great. Right. They're paying me. Yes, exactly. Um, let's see. The next book on here, I got All Gone Things That Aren't There, uh, or something like that. Is that right? All Gone Things That Aren't There. There anymore. we go. I, I, wrote, I wrote it without the colon, so it says All Gone yeah. Things That Aren't There. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. great fun because there was... Um, I wrote this when the internet was even less reliable than it is now, so this was all um, uh, library research, pretty much, as well as going around to a few old people I knew and saying, what do you remember that's, that's gone? 
was, again, a job of great education. Um, and, but a lot, Michael Ventura, terrific essays, talks about, he wrote an article years ago. It's now, I think, published under the, the talent of the room. But when I read it uh, in a the newspaper, it was called The Art of the Chair. And the art of the chair for me, for him, was you create anything by planting your butt in the chair long enough and working at it. <laughs> it's not. It's not a mystery. It's the the talent is going into the room and doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these books are like that for me. Um, it's I have an assignment. I'm a professional. I hope I have fun doing it. But by God, I'm going to plant my my butt in the chair and not get up till it's done. And that's the way. The I enjoy the nostalgia book. I love history. Um, I've written a lot of history and biography, and that fascinates me. But the nostalgia book the All Gone book, one of the things that got me the unexpectedly, I have no interest in sports whatsoever. <laughs> but writing the chapter on things like stadiums or sports teams, I wrote a section for that about Ebbets Field and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm-hmm. And the, the quotes and stories that I was reading about people, players, who were, played on the Dodgers and had a great sentiment and feeling for it and for Ebbets Field. One of these guys said something like, Ebbets Field was wonderful. Even if you were the rawest, greenest rookie, it kept you from tripping your, over your own feet. <laughs> and I, oh, I thought, what a beautiful quote. I put, I put that in. <laughs> uh, and now where Ebbets Field was, and, and these, this is a kind of irony that if you put it in a book, it would, in, in fiction, you'd say, oh, cool, so cornball. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's a parking lot or something, but it has, you know, large flat walls, and there's a line saying, no, no ball playing here. Huh. <laughs> Where Evan Field used to stand. Wow. Now, how is this book set up? Is it just little uh, items, little, yes. like a list, and then you talk about it, or is it really big subjects, or how, how, no, how do you... No, well, it, it was everything. There was... It, there were big subjects. One of the things that I said was not there anymore was the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, but the... I, having come out of newspaper and magazine journalism, writing a book was a new thing for me, or kind of new. I'd written a few, but nothing of this scale. Um, and so I divided it into what I thought of as newspaper magazine articles, a few hundred words on each subject, and that worked out pretty well. Okay. Let's see. The next book we have uh, looks like a biography on Jerry Spinelli. Jerry Spinelli, children's book author. Okay. One the- okay. Uh, the, what was it, the Newberry, I think it was the Newberry Award. I always get the Newberry and the Call to Cop mixed up. Um, I used to work in libraries, too. I'm, yeah. I'm bear- one's for writing, uh, one's for art, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Spinelli won for, for his book Maniac McGee, but he's written a lot of books for kids and young adults. Uh, and I was hired, they were doing, the publisher was doing a series of books on young, uh, young people's authors. I really wanted to do the book on Francesca Leah Block because of Wheatsie Bat, because she wrote about L.A., where I've always lived, mm-hmm. and, well, she was at the time young and attractive, and I thought, well, maybe if I get to know her, because uh, I was single, but in any event, I got Jerry Spinelli, and um, he was a guy who, I, it was interesting, what I like to do, in whether I'm an editor or a writer, is look for what's not there was not explicit and I noticed for example he wrote this one um, one book for teenagers one it did not get very 
received, and he's never written a teenage a book for teenagers again. <laughs> now he talked about that. He's never said, "Oh God, I left a, 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 a bad taste in my mouth" or whatever. Um, but I thought, "Oh, well, isn't that interesting?" And I just kind of mentioned it. After this book, he never wrote another book for teenagers again. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Um, and so that was, um, I never spoke to him. I, I did an interview, uh, via, via mail, mm -hmm. uh, where he just, I just submitted the questions, the publisher sent them to him, he answered them. Um, and, but I, I did end up reading all of his books and liking them quite a bloody bit. He's a, he's a really good writer. And honestly, I wish he would write stuff for grownups. I'd read him. He's mm -hmm. really good. <laughs> Um, so I assume, I, uh, forgive me, I don't really know him that well, I guess. Uh, most most adults don't. Yeah. He, his best known book, Maniac McGee, okay. when I met I was writing about, I, I was talking to my sister-in-law and, you know, her, her family, okay. her, her daughter was there, and I said, I'm writing about Jerry Spinelli, and my sister, my sister-in-law, who's a school teacher, said to her daughter, you know that one, he wrote Maniac McGee, and my my niece's face lit up. Oh yeah! So, <laughs> you got to be in the right crowd. Right, um, but he's still around. He's still doing oh. new books currently. As far as I know, I have okay. not kept. I have not kept in touch. Okay, okay, because you know that was the main thing. I was just curious. You know, seeing that, you know, and talking about, it, you know, I, I, I am still interested in children's books as best I can be, um, especially if they're well written. Uh, oh, yeah. I always, you know, whenever I go to the Barnes and Noble, uh, remember that brick and mortar store. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. um, I always go into the children's book section because I'm just kind of curious what's coming out, and I flip through graphic novels and various picture books just to kind of see what's going on. You know, I don't necessarily yeah. buy them, but you know, I don't always, to be honest, you look at. You know, I, know. <laughs> I do sometimes, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like anything, uh, Raina Talmiger, however you pronounce her oh. name, I hate to say, uh, uh, puts out, I, I, I buy, yes, so I like her stuff, so things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's funny how they lay out the store, uh, because if I'm looking for something, I have to go through, uh, the humor section, then I have yep. to go through the graphic novel section, and then I have to go through the children's section, because it could be in any one of those three places something right. I'm looking for. Exactly. <laughs> so, I just make a big uh, tour around the, the store and pick up something and buy something, or put it back, or look through it. Uh, but I don't always look at names, so that's why I was like, yep. kind of curious of what Jerry had done, so I'll have oh, to pay yeah. attention to him, so... Uh, the last two books I saw on the list, um, they're very similar, so I'll just mention them in tandem. Uh, Teens in South Africa, Teens in Iran? Yes. Iran? <laughs> yeah, those, those were the part of a series, and um, I, I did not travel to either of those places, but it was fascinating to read, uh, to, to study up on them. Iran in particular, because one thing I did not know is that um, at the time, it may still be true. The biggest languages, as far as just number of people or, or traffic online, were something like English, Chinese, and always third or fourth was Farsi. Hmm. Because the Iranians, this is no primitive country. These guys are hooked up. And that saved me, because a lot of these people, in order to write honestly but not get caught by the authorities, wrote in English. So there were these very surprisingly uh, frank 
uh, blogs out there by young people and and folks who worked and you know knew young people, and it and it really helped tremendously. It also did not hurt very much. I didn't use this uh, resource because I didn't have a lot of time. Uh, but Los Angeles has an enormous Iranian uh, immigrant community. It is the nickname for LA is is Tarangelis. <laughs> and, and in fact, a lot of people in Iran, there, there's a lot of television production in Farsi that goes to Iran uh, to the point where the authorities in Iran will sometimes do a sweep in, uh, of houses to find hidden um, uh, satellite dishes mm-hmm. because people are trying to get news from a free country uh. um, and they wanted it in Farsi. And that was LA. We have the Farsi speakers and the TV industry. Um, but it was, it was that was a fascinating book to, to dig into. For example, I found that although yes, it is a very devoutly Iranian country and very heavily, it's a police state. It's very heavily, heavily policed. The most popular music for young people is heavy metal. <laughs> they love Metallica in Iran. Wow. Oh my God, Metallica could do a 30-day uh, residency, at least at that time, if, the, if Iran would allow it. <laughs> Motorhead, they love that. So, wow. it's, it's, yeah. Do, do they have, uh, do they allow this? So, like, uh, like I know the Soviet Union used to do this, is that they would have uh, cover bands in lieu of having the actual artists show up. Do they, so they have Metallica cover bands or anything like that, to your knowledge? <laughs> I really doubt it. Okay, uh, so they're really clamping down. They don't allow anything. Oh, okay. oh, oh, yeah. They're, okay. they're very, very strong. But, oh, I, I found myself just falling in love with the Iranian people because they kept finding ways around the rules. Yeah. Give you a couple quick examples. Uh, Iranian women are some of the best makeup artists in the world because they had to be covered up. The only things they could show were their hands and their faces. Mm-hmm. So you had these women, if that's all you got, that's what you do. Oh my God, they were just beautifully, beautifully made up. Uh, um, hot plastic surgeons did, a, do, did, at least, and probably still do, a land office business because if the only thing you got is your face, well, there's going to be a lot of nose jobs. <laughs> uh, or women, young women, young men, teenagers are not, and I was writing about teenagers, were not allowed to be out um, with each other in public. Maybe not, they're not supposed to be in private either. But private, you could hide. But, you know, so there are no, like, school dances. Well, what could be done, though, and this is one of these open secrets, is um, there's a lot. Iran has some beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, terrain. And so kids would go out on hikes. And, of course, the hikes would be just the guys. <laughs> and there'd be another hiker, set of hikers, just the women, just the girls. <laughs> top of these of a hill or something or in a forest um, where they could get together with each other but they left separately it looked like just a group of guys going on a nature hike just group another, uh, just another group of girls an hour or two later on a nature hike perfectly wholesome no problem <laughs> except they would get together in secret I love people who are that good at getting around stupid you know dictatorial rules God, God bless the ingenuity of the Iranian people well how did you find out this I mean if it's so secret people about it. People, 
people blog about it. Oh, wow. So it's not that secret. It's just secret to... (laughs) Well, it's one of these open secrets where the the country... They got... The the religious police, who are really... Who generally are a terror. um, I think they had better things to do, or at least other things to do. Or maybe... I don't know. Maybe they (laughs) preferred to bust people who had money so they could get bribes. I don't know. I have no fondness for the Iranian religious police. Mm -hmm. Neither do the Iranians. (laughs) But but also, there were a lot of really good journalists covering Iran, going going into it, writing about what the people did. Mm -hmm. Um, Between the blogs and the journalists out there, I found a lot of... And and God bless them both for their courage. And I'm... Because... You know, Iran has no hesitation about um, expelling or imprisoning journalists or attacking or even killing their own people. So, yeah, I mean, look, I'm having a good laugh about this, but these people, oh, my God, the the bravery of the Iranian people and the journalists, Iranian and foreign, who covered that country, holy hell, I, I have such admiration for them. Now, did you have any trouble with the book, or is it just like you just did the book and that's it? So. I, just, I just wrote it, the publisher put it out. Okay. Um, that's it. I, I would imagine it's not being published in Iran. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> that's true. But, yeah, it's, it's, Iran is one of those places. Russia is like this, too, from what I've understood. Terrific people, terrible government. Mm. Okay. So how does it compare to the other book you did? Is there only two that you've done in the series, a South uh, Africa yeah. one being the other? <laughs> It was just two. The South Africa book was a lot easier because it's an open society. Um, But one of the things that really got me about that is that it's a a country in transition. I said in the introduction to the book that this is a book about teenagers, and it's a teenage country. When I wrote the book, the country itself, as we know it now, the Mandela and, you know, the the post-apartheid regime, was only about 15, 16 years old at the time. And it was going through growing pains (laughs) uh, because... The majority was, of course, black, but where the money was, the government, the whites didn't control the government anymore, but they had the money. Yeah. So there was still a lot of tensions. Um, and, and the country had problems that, uh, every country's got problems, but incredibly high rate of AIDS. Hmm. And um, especially, you know, it's, among younger people, not necessarily teenagers, but you get into your 20s, oh, it was raging. Um, Poverty, horrendous poverty. Um, And yet there were also opportunities for people to uh, move up now that apartheid was gone. And you see, I would see the pictures of these teenagers at their proms, these black teenagers, and thinking, you know, five, ten years ago, you wouldn't have been dressed up going to a party. (laughs) It, it, it was just, again, it was so heartening uh, to see these these kids. It's like, my God, you now have freedom. Oh, God, kids, I'm, I'm so rooting for you. Make the best of it. <laughs> Did anybody talk about Rodriguez and Sugar Man? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's a whole other story, but um, let's see. Are there any books that I might have missed? Those are the ones I came up with uh, doing my quick research to find out who you were. But I knew I knew you from Disney originally, but I wanted to get a more well-rounded portrait of who you are. Well, I did. uh, I've done a bunch of of books based on 
various pop culture characters. I've, I've, written, I've written storybooks and movie adaptations based on, on Superman and King Kong and, and um, Batman and Fantastic Four and quite a few other things. And that's always an interesting thing because the security, uh, the CIA should have security like Warner Brothers, let me tell you. They are good. Um, and I mean, to, what I had to do for some of these things, I could not get a script to take home. I had to read it in the office. Wow. And yes, with with the with, you know in a in a closed room. Um, if I wanted to go out just to the bathroom and get a drink of water, leave the script in the room. Uh, I don't blame them because you know secrecy on these things is very important. But well, for example, I was at one point supposed to write. Uh, the um, novelization of, of X Men Three, mm-hmm. and I and I read it in the office, and I took notes, and I said, "Well, can I get a copy to take home?" And they said, "No." And I said, "Wait a minute. If I'm doing a storybook, something short, I can fudge over it. All I need is the main plot points and some dialogue. I'm good. But a novel has so much detail, right. and every detail has to be exactly right." I cannot write a novel based on one reading of the script. I have to be able to consult the script back and forth throughout the job. Right. And they said they said no, and I was off that job. Oh wow! So then they yeah. came out. Okay. Yeah, or, no, I mean, it, it wasn't an argument. Even it was just um, I have to work one way. They have to work another. Wasn't compatible. Okay, we will shake hands and say goodbye. They were all they were all very nice about it. It's just their way of doing business flashed with mine. Wow. <laughs> now, the, the ones I've seen that you've done, um, were they based on movie scripts or more of like animated uh, TV episodes or things like that? It's a mix. Okay. It's a mix. Okay. I've done stuff based on live action TV, based on the Hercules TV show with Kevin Sorbo, for example. Uh, that was an original novel that I wrote based on an idea from the, um, the show Bible that said that there were People, Hercules was so famous and beloved that there were people going around the countryside pretending to be Hercules, and I thought, a Hercules impersonator. Oh yeah, oh that's that's a story. Because what if Hercules goes into a town and the Hercules impersonator was already there, drinking all the wine and sleeping with all the wenches, and then skipped town? <laughs> but Hercules shows up. I'm a hero. I'm a demigod. People, you know, I'm a good. Guy. I know I'm a good guy, and they they said you, you again. <laughs> Um, so that there's there was that uh, I did um, Fantastic Four photo novel, which was interesting because I had to use movie stills, mm-hmm. and because of the rules of secrecy of these of movie companies, there were not a lot of stills running around. I had to be really inventive <laughs> in in writing in, in arranging them and writing the, the captions. And the designer of that book, I didn't even know who it was going to be. I didn't know what he was doing until I got the book. But he did great stuff that I never, I should have thought of. For example, <laughs> there was a, a photo of Reed Richards and Sue Storm together. Um, but I was writing, and I was writing, and I put that in at a period where I was writing about their relationship and how, in the movie, it tore apart because Reed was all science and no heart to speak mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, so I just put in the image. What the designer did is he took the image and literally, I think, ripped it in two to show the relationship tearing apart. <laughs> I got it later, and I said, "Thank you." That's what I was trying to express. You made it visually work. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, have you actually worked on any of the 
the actual comic books or just these novelizations like Fantastic Four or anything? Okay. Pretty much the novelizations. I'd love to do the comics. Um, and I've had some talks with people at, at DC, uh, not so much Marvel, but at DC. But, well, for example, I was talking to an editor at DC, was at the time running the Batman books, sent him some story ideas. He liked some of them. He said, I'll get back to you. We'll figure out, you know, what we might do with some of these. Uh, and then about a, a week or two later, he was transferred to the Superman books. Hmm. And the new editor coming in um, wanted his own people. I don't blame him. When I was an editor, I, I would do that. Um, but those story ideas are, you know, just sitting in my computer now. Hmm. So it, that just happens. That's business. It's a matter of, of just, it's just timing. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else I got here? Uh, a couple other publishers. I, I just wrote down the names, but I don't really know what you did for them. Uh, one is Claypool Comics. For Claypool, I was their marketing director for, oh my God, almost a decade, I guess. Okay. Um, and so I would go around, I was doing everything from writing press releases to doing their conventions. Uh, you know, the signage, the signings by the, by the writers and artists, uh, buying the booths, buying the booth at one point, um, arranging all the publicity for that. And uh, that was, that was great fun because Richard Howell was the writer who's the editor of the line and writer and artist of some of the of the books um he and the publisher Ed Via, Via, Via I can never remember um <laughs> the I how to spell sorry Ed I don't but they they basically um as long as I didn't spend much money they basically went with what I wanted to do um and they were they were just terrific to work for um and yeah um it was it was a lot of fun because for a tiny publisher, you have to figure out smarter ways to get people to pay attention because you don't have the marketing muscle of the big guys. Right. And so Richard and I would come up with, with things. What do we do? Uh, uh, one example was the um, we since it's called Clay Pool, we created the month a month of books called Jump In, which were meant for new readers. You didn't have to know anything about the characters. You jump in with this issue. Um, and Diamond, got, uh, the main distributor at the time, still the main distributor, um, got behind it and promoted the books in their catalog. And, and the books sold, and we got new readers whose attitude was, hey, we didn't even know this existed. This is good stuff. <laughs> um, and I, it was a fine experience because I had to do everything. I mean, I was designing ads um, and, and you know, negotiating with... Um, uh, travel companies, trucking companies to get our booth from show to show. Um, it was, and, and I was, it was great fun. Plus, the since Richard was in the comics business at DC and Marvel and is a good guy, we had people on the books George Perez, Peter David, Kurt Busick, uh, just a lot of really, really top talent. And it was it, an absolute pleasure to. Um, and some of those guys are still my friends today. Now, did you write anything for them, or are you too busy doing no. the marketing and everything else? <laughs> I'm very much a, in, in magazine newspaper publishing. There's what's called the church and state division. The marketing side does not get involved with the editorial side. When I was an editor, I always appreciated marketing people who said, look, you make the books, we'll sell them. <laughs> um, and that's, that's 
that's the standpoint I took. I never even tried to submit a story um, because I, I really feel very strongly in that church and state division. Right. But I think, isn't that actually how Peter David got started? Didn't he start? And... Yes, <laughs> um, but that was, that was a different deal, different time, different character, different people. Uh, and there was Marvel, I don't think, had that huge problem. And also, Peter was much more interested in being a comics writer. I wanted to write comics too, but I was also doing all this other stuff. I was not creatively stifled. I was writing books. I was doing a bunch of different things. Um, as much as I wanted to write comics, um, it would have felt... But it also would have put... See, here's the thing. When Peter was at Marvel, his boss was Carol Talish. But the editor of the books that he worked for, I think his first editor was uh, was Chris Priest. Mm-hmm. They, they were two different people. The editors of the books at Claypool was my boss, Richard. So if I had said to Richard, hey, in addition to marketing, I want to do some writing, it would put him in a pretty awkward position. <laughs> okay, I get it. Okay. Yeah, so I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I was in similar situations. I worked for a number of newspapers on the sales side for years. Right. And if I ever wanted to do any sort of freelance writing, it never was for the newspaper I was working for, which initially baffled me, but the later on I got it. But it, it did baffle other people. It's like, well, you work for this paper. Why don't you write for it? And it's like, yeah, I came up with the same idea. I didn't say church and state, but that's a good way to describe it. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, that's... And- one of the things, then this happened at Disney a lot, people did not understand, Disney's got this huge marketing muscle. Why isn't it promoting the Disney comics? And I said, no, you don't understand. Disney has a lot of money. The, but the movie, but it's not like one big pool of money that you can, that anybody can grab. The movie people have their marketing budget. TV people have theirs. The, the parks have theirs. The comics division has its. And we're a small new division. So it, the fact that you don't see our books in every every place you look is simply because each division has to make its own profit. Yeah. It has its budget. So, it's, so yeah, there are all these, these divisions and things that people think are monolithic. Yeah. Although it would have been cool back then if uh, you had uh, some character in a Disney live-action feature pull out a comic book in a scene or something, or even put a little quickie plug at the beginning or the end of the movie, you know, by the way, if you like this movie, there's a comic book adaptation, you know, on arachnophobia, let's say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, believe me, we wanted that. We tried, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Above my level. But I think there were attempts made. Um, but, you know, I just kept my head down and and made comic books. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I did do on the marketing side of Disney that turned out very well. Mm-hmm. Um, San Diego Comic-Con one year, uh, there was going to be a Disney Comics panel at the show, which was great. That was that was happy. But it was going to be at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. First thing, we thought, oh, no. These days it's a little different because the show is so completely crowded. Anything can get a good crowd. But we thought, 10 a.m., that's death. People are going to be hungover. People are going to be having breakfast. People are going to be still asleep. How do we get people to show up? And I said, well, uh, the editors, we editors were talking. And I said, well, Jesus, let's serve them breakfast or something. And what that became, when we took it to the marketing people, who were very nice, um, we brought in coffee and donuts. And, we, and, and it became our little tagline for that event. Hey, donuts with Disney. And we got a good crowd. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you got to be careful with that church-state division, but sometimes if you got a good idea, right? Yeah, you know, reach out. Uh, 
one other publisher I was going to mention, I, I don't know if they, you know, it's related to any of the books we've talked about, but NBM Publishing? NBM, yes. Okay. Uh, Terry okay, was the N in NBM, his publisher. They do, uh, he hired me to be his online marketing director. Uh, they do a lot of um, uh, comics from overseas, Very some of them very high tone. They also did lines of erotica. Uh, they also had a, a sister company, Pepperkuss, which did children's comics, which is very successful. Okay, I know them. I've worked for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a lot of it was, was press releases and convention work. I wasn't in charge of marketing as much as I was at Claypool, but NBM was a good company. I was proud to be associated with them. Um, and... I wasn't there very long. I was there like I don't know three years maybe, um, but they were they were a good shop. And my God, they survived in this business for more than well. When I was there, one of the things I did was promote the fact that the company was having its 30th anniversary. And so at the San Diego Comic Con, I brought in a cake decorated with with the initials NBM. Um, and it's like Terry is. A brilliant, brilliant survivor. Um, especially because you know, a lot of the stuff from overseas, especially the very, I mean, he he got it. The, the Louvre Museum uh, published or paid for a commission for graphic novels based on artwork from the Louvre. Terry did the American published them in America and Canada. Um, that's a very high tone stuff, but high tone stuff doesn't sell very well a lot of the time. Um, so, I mean, my hat is off for ter to Terry for bringing a lot of really great stuff uh, so that where Americans could see it and, and read it without having to get it translated. Mm -hmm. he did, yeah, the translation's done. God bless him. <laughs> Let's see. I, I think I have three things before we go. Yeah. <laughs> They're all vastly different than each other. So. <laughs> Bring them on. You're a teacher at UCLA? I was. I okay. talked uh, around the time when Disney Comics was ending, one of the freelance gigs I scared up was I proposed to UCLA Extension, their adult education division for people, you know, already out of college, um, to teach comic book writing. And I did that for three sessions. Uh, and I, um, it ended up benefiting me in a couple couple ways, which I will talk about. But the students were great. Uh, in fact, and some, some of the stories were good, some were not. But I love the enthusiasm that they had. I mean, these are people, this is, these are not college kids. You know, these are grown-ups. They didn't have to be there. And they were, and they loved it. Um, mm. And But, I mean, in fact, two of the students in my first class ended up getting married to each other. So, oh. it's like, aw, aw. They didn't invite me. <laughs> Responsible for them getting together, but okay. <laughs> uh, but, no, they're, they're lovely people. Um, but... I, brought, I always brought in um, guest lecturers for the second half of the class because I know that I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. So, and I got in people, um, the best ones that, that I could find. So there was Len Wayne and Mark Wolf and Mark Evanier, Howard Shaken. Um, there was, um, I brought in James Robinson and David Goyer. And of course, Goyer is writing all the Marvel movies, it seems, um, these days. Uh, back then, he was breaking into comics. <laughs> um, and uh, just uh, Trick Busick, Mark Wade, all these terrific comics writers and editors and some artists, because I wanted the artist's viewpoint. Um, and 
a couple things that I used actually as examples to my students. At one point, Bill Morrison, who was editor-in-chief of Bongo Comics, which was doing The Simpsons, um, he mentioned that, I was asking, well, what's going on at Bongo? He said, well, we're creating these Sunday comics pages for the foreign market. And I, and I said, oh, really? Uh, Bill, you need any writers for these? <laughs> he, well, we, we could. You, you know, let's get in touch afterwards. And I turned to my students and I said, I said that's how you get work. <laughs> opportunities as soon as you can yep. and i ended up writing quite a few stories for bongo um but yeah ucla extension um it was oh boy i, I loved writing that class because it's true you learn once you have to really break down what you think you know into things that, so that other people can understand it uh boy it really teaches you how to uh see what is in a story rather than just what feels right to really understand the mechanics and the techniques and what's important and what's not. Mm. Um, I, and, boy, and also having done, having been on stage, having done stand-up and other comedy, it allowed me to ham it up here and there. <laughs> and the students, as I say, they oh boy, were they good. Uh, so that's UCLA. So, um... um... The, this leads into the probably the next thing, because you, you talked about performing. It says you did some improv with Second City? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Second City Hollywood. Okay. The, technically, the Second City Hollywood Training Center, because the only real Second City is the one in New York. <laughs> Chicago. Sorry. Chicago, yeah. Uh, 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 but, yeah. Um, and I did improv there and at other places, Improv Olympic and the Groundlings and other places, for about a decade. And it was... Oh, wow. It was so much fun, um, and I ended up um, running into people who became sizable names, and it's weird as hell. Uh, <laughs> my, my favorite example, Lisa Kudrow, who you know went on to do Friends and many other things, it became you know quite this big deal. Um, well, uh, you know, before she was Phoebe on Friends, I was in. We were students in this one class. Uh, I didn't get to know her well. It was a drop-in class, and so sometimes she was there, sometimes I was. But it was weird, because Lisa, it was always good. Good actress, funny as hell. Um, there was no question, I, nobody knew she was going to be, you know, one of, the stars of, one of the stars of one of the biggest sitcoms ever. But everybody there could see, oh yeah, she's talented, she's going to have a career. Yeah. Um, and she works hard and all that. And I always thought Lisa was pretty, a real knockout. There's no question, very attractive woman. Mm hmm I never expected to see her like on the cover of, of, of Glamour or, you know, all these big fancy beauty and fashion magazines. It's like, she's a pretty woman, but there are a lot of pretty women. Yeah. And so suddenly there was what fame can do to uh, somebody who is deserving of it, but it takes you places where you wouldn't expect them to go. Right. <laughs> and again, yes, I, I always thought Lisa was very pretty, but, you know, sharing cover space on places like Flammer? Yeah. Ow! Good for you, Lisa. Knock him dead. <laughs> she was great. She was very nice and talented and, and funny. Oh, it, she deserves all the success she's got. Hmm. And then uh, the last thing, but uh, I might talk a little bit more about something else, but uh, yeah. uh, your wife is Leah Hernandez, and she and, story. Yes. and you told me she works on Teen Titans Go. <laughs> uh, she is one of the artists. Uh, she has been one of the artists on the Teen Titans Go comic books, mm -hmm. um, and she 
uh, also has done graphic novels of her own. She worked with Gail Simone on a graphic novel called Killer Princesses. She has done uh, her own books, uh, and she continues to work on her own projects now. And she's done a lot of stuff in addition to comics. Um, but yeah, she does. The main thing she's known for these days is drawing stories for Teen Titans Go comic books. Mm-hmm. And, and we have met uh, some of the people who work on the show, and a couple of them have written stories that she's drawn, like Amy Wolfram and Merrill Hagan. And it was such a joy that Merrill, Merrill Hagan's written for Teen Titans Go. He's on staff. He knows what he's doing. He's really good. And he has asked for Leah to draw his stories. It's like when you've got somebody who knows the show inside, outside, upside, down, <laughs> and he says, I want her. It's like, yeah, that's my wife, the talented one. <laughs> work butt on, get it on model and make it funny and make it and tell the story. I, 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 let me put it this way. If you had started out by asking about me, I would never have gotten to myself. I think she's the best. <laughs> And I do see her books in the Barnes Noble section in the children's section. So that's right. Uh, you know, it's not in the graphic novels. It's not in the humor. It's like, <laughs> so there no, we go. She's, she's terrific. You you give her you give her a podcast hour. She will. She has many wonderful stories. Let me put it that way. I'll have to talk to her in a future podcast and get the real dirt on you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's, <laughs> anyway. yeah. Um, I guess that's about it. I wanted to say just like, um, you know, you mentioned Bongo Comics. I didn't mention that. uh, But uh, you just wrote basic scripts. Was it for any particular title or just a Simpsons title? Or did you do anything like Radioactive Man or something crazy like that? No, um, mostly because I went where the greatest need was. And uh, the Simpsons and comics and the Bart Simpson title those were where they needed uh, stories, so that's where I submitted. Okay. And I'll tell you, those are the people at Bongo treat you very well. I mean, they're they're very very good folks. Yes. But the characters, and I didn't realize this until I started writing them. You can't go wrong uh, as long as you keep them in character. They'll be funny. You don't have to invent much. You, I mean, I did a story once um, with, and all it was was Homer had to repair a hole in the roof. Mm-hmm. And it and it flowed. I mean, I didn't. It's like once, yeah, you could throw them into the simplest situations, and it, and they work. It's not like I'm the world's greatest comedy writer, although I like to think I'm good. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's these characters work so well, solo or in, in connection with each other. As the, as long as you keep them true to themselves, keep them in character, they're going to be funny. You don't have to contrive anything it's 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 wonderful yeah that seems a prevailing thing i've talked to ian boothby before terry delegene and bill morrison's a friend of mine so yeah, yeah. they all say oh the same god. thing so ian boothby is so funny oh my god yes yeah. <laughs> and i first encountered him because he wrote a, a casper a tv movie and i was doing harvey stuff of course and so ah. uh that and then later he started doing the bongo stuff and i kept asking him how do you get into this bongo thing? Of course, now the time has passed, but he says, just keep writing, just keep writing, they'll eventually publish <laughs> so. that's, that's it. I, I just kept submitting ideas, yeah. uh, and they said, oh, yeah, that one's good. Go do that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
All right. At this point, we've talked for a decent amount of time, so thank you very much. Uh, do you have anything to plug that you're currently working on or a website or anything else? Not at the moment. Right now, I, I'm not, I have a full-time job, so I'm not freelancing, so I don't have that much to, to plug. I'm trying to think. Um, the, the, latest, uh, the latest thing I have um, is a few years ago, so I will mention it, but no, I don't. But if, if you don't want to put it on the air, don't worry about it. I wrote a book of, and this is one of the few things that was not an assignment that I came up with on my own, um, a, a guidebook for teenage atheists and agnostics called What If I'm an Atheist? Wow. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I write whatever I can write. Um, and that one was, um, that came out a, a, you know, three years ago, something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and it was because it was my own idea uh, it, was, it is one that is very and because it's the most recent it, it's very dear to me and because it wasn't an assignment not an assignment not a complete buyout if it sells I get royalties <laughs> but, yeah it's it's. I'm very proud of that book I worked my butt off on it and I think I think it actually does a service because some atheist and agnostic kids out there are really all alone out there so having a book mm-hmm. like this one and there are not many like it um books aimed at that audience i felt oh good maybe i'm gonna not only as i think this is a good thing to write about but maybe it'll actually help somebody i love that idea mm-hmm. so most of the books you've written they're still in print and you can get them on amazon or in bookstores uh no oh <laughs> what's uh, <laughs> i don't know because i'm not buying them oh, okay. yes they, they are available on amazon but they might be uh, because you know there are a lot of booksellers on Amazon, right? Uh, but you would you might not get it directly from Amazon. You might get it from any number of the stores that Amazon partners with, right? But yeah, the, the book. I think pretty much everything I've written is 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 still out there from one source or another. Okay. Well, uh, if there's nothing else, I really appreciate you being on the podcast with me today. My pleasure. This is fun. All right. I thank you very much, and uh, I'll let you know when it airs. Very good. Then I can be embarrassed. It'll be fun. Yes. All right. It'll be sometime in December, probably, but uh, I'm probably going to cut this part off. But anyway, so. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. And have a good day. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, David Seedman, for being my special guest. Episode number 17 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. You can become a patron of Fun Ideas Productions, and if everyone listening just contributed $1 a month, that would be a tremendous help for me to put on these podcasts. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2018, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.